You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right. So today I'm going to get us started. Uh, And I'm actually really excited. This one has been on my (laughs) list for a little while. It's kind of, it's one of those topics that most people wouldn't think think about as being strange but i think it's kind of strange when you get into some of the nitty-gritty stuff okay so i'm gonna cover what's generally considered the first broadleaf tree oh all right first in terms of like evolution yes so not like the oldest living tree or anything like that like the first broadleaf tree that evolved okay all right cool so Coniferous trees evolved about 300 million years ago, and this order evolved about 290 million years ago, and it's not a flowering tree, so it's not an angiosperm. Okay, so it's a broadleaf tree, but not... Not an angiosperm. angiosperm. Okay. Not an angiosperm, which would be like the oaks and maples that we generally have around everywhere. I'm trying to think if I can think what this tree is. Is this this one I'm going to be familiar with? I guarantee both of you have seen this tree. I have a guess. Uh, okay. I wanna, yeah. I'll see if my guess is right. <laughs> I'll write so, it on a little piece of paper here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this tree has been around so long that it's the only species left in its division, which is one below it, one below like clade, which is below kingdom in like scientific order. Uh, it's, the only one left in the class, left in the order, left in the family, and left in its genus. It is a living fossil, having been unchanged for the past 200 million years. Okay, I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> it is the ginkgo biloba. Yay! Exactly, yay! yay. <laughs> so, I ro- actually, so the name ginkgo, generally speaking, most of us know it as just ginkgo. We don't. That's also its common name. Its genus name is also its common name, which makes sense because it's the only one left sure, in sure. all of those bits. Uh, it's actually found in mainland China. That's generally where it is. And is technically an endangered species because oh. in the wild, you do not see them. They get shaded out by a lot of the other trees. Okay. Um, sure. It's also found in Korea and in Japan. And its original mm-hmm. name is thought to be a, a misrendering of the Japanese words for jin, meaning silver, and uh, kayo, meaning apricot. Uh, so okay. silver huh. apricot, it, meaning uh, kind of going, harkening back to the fruit of this particular right, right. tree. Yes. I say fruit, uh, quotations there, it's not a real fruit, um, but we'll get into that. So yeah, is, I'm, yeah, I'm really curious to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah, I so thought, this I is a... I always thought it was a fruit. Yeah, so it's kind of a fruit, but not really. It's not okay. a true fruit. 
Uh, so this sounds is a, strange. Yes, doesn't it? Uh, so this is a commonly uh, for us nowadays. It is used very much as a street tree, but only the males, which we will get into. Right, um, so that's where that's where most people would have seen this is like you know along a boulevard or something it. like that. Oh yeah, yeah. they try They're, to plant only the males. They don't always succeed. No, they don't always. Succeed. <laughs> no, they don't. It sounds like you have experience with the female ginkgo trees there. Oh, there are several in my neighborhood. Yes, there's a certain time of the fall when we experience oh, what oh, we're oh, I'm oh, sure oh, going to oh. talk about. Oh, we will. Uh, so this, when you're walking down the street some ways that you can tell that you're looking at a ginkgo tree. Um, this can actually be a fairly large tree. Uh, it can be anywhere from 66 to 115 feet tall, uh, which I didn't know because any ginkgo trees I've seen have not been that tall, but they are very <laughs> slow growing. So it takes them a very, very long time to get to that height. Um, however, they can live up to about a thousand years. What? Whoa. Wow, I did mm -hmm. not know that. <laughs> yeah, so one of these trees can live to be about a thousand years old. Uh, I don't think we found any that are up there. I think the oldest one we found is about a hundred or no, six hundred and sixty-five years old, which is, don't get me wrong, still very old. <laughs> so how do they know it can live to be a thousand? Science. <laughs> I think they were able to tell, like, it wasn't dead or anything like that. Uh, it was still a living tree, and they were able to, like, extrapolate that. I'm not sure. I'm not a Or did they find a dead ginkgo that so. was, and they counted the rings, and it was a thousand years old? Also entirely possible. Hmm. Um, we don't know. We don't hmm. know. And by we, I just mean the three of us. Well, so. listeners, yeah, we uh, if you want to do some research on your own and tell us on social media, we would be fascinated to hear. I would love that. Do our job for uh, us. I think Rachel was really hoping that was the one question we wouldn't ask. <laughs> so much. I have so many notes for everything else, and there's some cool things. Okay. Gotcha. So, ah. So the crown, the overall shape of this tree, when it gets like taller and bigger is kind of angular it's kind of cone shaped um mm -hmm. it's not like a big old circle or like uh that we see a lot of times with other trees um so that's crown is generally going to be more angular um it really was one of the first like broad broadleaf trees to exist before this it was just like needle trees or conifer trees um and for this particular tree, when you're looking for it, the leaves are a huge giveaway. Um, yes. They look a lot like little hand fans that are bright green, and they're kind of sort of, they kind of sort of feel like leather. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They're really I, I used to have one in my front yard. And they have, yeah. a, they have a shape that has two lobes. Yes. So the name, Hence, the species name. Biloba. Biloba. <laughs> I, that is literally my next bullet point, Victoria. Oh, sorry. I'm stealing <laughs> no, your No, you're good. That's so beautiful. Uh, speaking of beautiful, uh, in the fall, they turn like a bright saffron yellow. Generally mm -hmm. speaking, in most most of the season, it is a bright green. Uh, but in the fall, they turn a bright yellow. And within 15 days, sometimes, all of the leaves can fall. Just whoosh, down. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
these trees, kind of what we were touching on earlier, uh, these trees have separate male and female trees. Uh, they are not all in one tree. Uh, the males will produce a pollen and get pollinated. The pollen that's produced eventually will go to the female trees. And the female, once they are pollinated, they will produce a seed that's encased in a fleshy fruit-like cone. So it's not tr a true fruit. A fruit a fruit is defined by a flower. It has to be it has to come from an ovum of right. a tree and this is not coming from ovum, so it's not a true fruit. So is the pollen also on a cone like with a conifer or what kind um, of structure is the pollen coming from if it's not a flower? The pollen Is that another question you were hoping we wouldn't ask? It they do have their own little pollen cones, very similar to a conifer, yes. Okay. Um, it, it's just slightly different than uh, a conifer cone. Uh, they're a little longer and everything. And technically, they are motile sperm. So like in uh, ferns, mosses, and algae. So oh. they move, which is okay. weird. I yeah. wasn't expecting that in my research to come across that. Um. Another thing that was that you touched upon, do you want to tell everyone what does it smell like when uh, that fruit-like cone falls onto the oh. ground and splits open? Well, um, we try to keep things uh, clean on this podcast, so I'm going to say they smell like dog poop. Uh, pretty oh, much. Nice. Yeah, yep. you, you start walking down the street and like, did I step in something? Oh, wait, mm -hmm. no. It's just a ginkgo tree. It's yeah. kind of a um, a toss-up. I, I, I'm sure you know, they had to choose if they were going to plant the male trees or the female trees. And so generally in cities, a lot of landscape architects and whatnot don't want to plant the fruiting trees because they make a mess. <laughs> or in the case of the ginkgo are really stinky. Stink. But yeah. the, do you know the flip side of that, though, the other problem we get? What? So much for allergies. Yeah, so all the male trees are the ones that put out all the pollen, yeah. and actually ginkgos are, are wind-pollinated, mm -hmm. and they produce a ton of pollen, and so I know if you're an allergy sufferer like me for tree pollen, all those male, male trees are Sneeze worse the than time. the, you know, several days of dog poop smell, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, these are the choices we make. Yeah, yeah. I, oof. I also, also heard... Oh, you I was going to say the fruits are really... Um, they're pretty sticky, so mm -hmm. when they're all over the sidewalk yeah. and you have to walk through them, it really does stick to your shoes, so then it, it's almost like you walked in dog poop. Might as well at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, you're already halfway there. I, I also, in people, my research... People do eat them, though. People do they eat do, them. They do. They uh, do. It's not really good for you. It can cause a lot of gastrointestinal distress. Um, <laughs> Isn't it like a traditional Chinese medicine ingredient or something? It's just a food. Is. Um, but we are there's not any scientific basis behind it being uh, actually helpful. Well. Yeah. <laughs> um in my research, it's almost like medieval medicine uh, has 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 evolved. Right? Mm -hmm. Who would have guessed? Hmm. Hmm. Uh also in my research I was reading that it could either smell like rancid butter or vomit. 
Those There's a certain vomit scenes. aspect. It's like vomit mixed with mm-hmm. dog poop. And yeah. Jeez. Oh, You're really selling it. Worse. Uh, and that's mainly due to the butyric acid <gasps> that is in. It's got butyric acid? <laughs> it's got butyric Gosh, acid. Gosh, I, I, I kind of want to do an episode just about butyric acid sometime. I think I got to put that on my list. Buckle up, listeners. <laughs> it's going to be really uh, smelly. <laughs> it's, an, it, it's, it's a wild topic. Where's my pencil? All right, go on. All right, but uh, that's mainly what is causing that smell, along with a few other acids and um, chemicals. Chemicals, chemicals thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm staring down at my computer like, what is the word? Other chemicals that are in that fruit, in that uh, seed. Um, overall, though, the, these trees are super, super resilient. Um, because of their leaves, they're pretty... Uh, and how leather leathery they are generally speaking no insects will go after those leaves they're too tough so mm. they're pretty resilient to insects uh they're pretty disease resi- resistant as well and when they were studying those older trees um it seems like they don't like they're slow growing but age doesn't seem to affect them um in the fact that they were able to produce the uh, photochemicals that they need indefinitely. Like, they, it didn't seem to slow down. They weren't experiencing any senescence. Okay. Um, like a lot Interesting. of uh, okay. older things do when they age. Which like is really humans. Like humans. Yes. Um, and just to give very, you a little more that. idea, this is my last little thing, but just to give you an idea how resilient this tree these trees are there were six trees that survived within a half mile to one and a quarter miles of the blast at hiroshima in 1945 wow and they're still alive today cool they survived that they survived the atom blast they were a half mile away from the the drop zone, and they're fine. They're still alive. That sounds uh, pretty hardy. It does yeah. indeed. So they're pretty crazy and pretty strange. Nice. Um, well, that's what I have for you all today. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we return, it will be Victoria. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. Bye-bye. Back to the show. All right, we're back. So the other week uh, when I was talking about cryptically extinct animals, I briefly yeah. mentioned, yeah, the thylacine. You guys remember the thylacine? Mm-hmm. Also yes. known as, oh, it's one of, my, one of my favorites. Yes, also known as the Tasmanian tiger. Although I don't really like that name. Um, so, and, you know, in the context I was talking about it, people keep seeing it, even though the last confirmed one died in 1936. 
and it almost certainly went extinct sometime in the 20th century. So thylacines, though, just on their own, are super cool and weird animals, and I wanted to talk about them some more. Yay! (laughs) So as I think I mentioned in the previous episode, thylacines were the largest known marsupial predator, and they looked... Uh, really quite similar to a large dog, especially the shape of the head is very similar to a dog. Um, The exception Uh kind of was their tail. They have this very long, stiff tail that comes out of their body looking a lot like a kangaroo tail, actually. Right, right. So you can kind of see the the marsupial body plan there to the extent that there is one. Yeah. And then, of course, the tiger name comes from the stripes that were on their back. Tiger-like stripes. So undog-like in that way. Um, So just a little more about marsupials. You you probably know some of this, but marsupials are those weird mammals where the fetus uh, does not grow a placenta and it's born at a very early stage of development. Like it's practically an embryo when it crawls out of its mother's (laughs) birth canal. (laughs) Yeah, they are. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Very little effort needed on the mom's side there. The only things that have really developed much are their forelimbs so that they can crawl up to their mother's pouch and then their, their mouth so that they can attach to a nipple. Um, and then they finish developing in the pouch. And I'm sure we've all seen pictures of kangaroo babies sticking their heads out of their mother's pouch adorably. The pouch Thank you, David um, But the pouch of the thy- thylacine was a little different. So for starters, the pouch faced backwards. Which right, right. that's not unique to the thylacine. There are several other types of marsupials um, that have this wombat. So, like any marsupial that's digging in the ground, like a wombat and burrowing, has a backward-facing pouch for a very important reason, so that it doesn't fill with dirt. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's a good reason. A dirt pouch. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, some marsupials have like a. Um, a forward-facing pouch, sort of like a um, an eye almost that can open and close. They have like a sphincter around. Oh, uh, oh I don't like that. Our <laughs> North American opossums are sort of like that. Um, just a side slightly disturbing note. But uh, thylacines were very unusual in that both sexes had a pouch. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. so the only other marsupial that has this feature is still living, and it's uh, the water opossum, which is... Uh, in Central and South America. Okay. But so for males, I mean, the female function of the pouch is obvious. We just talked about it. But in males, it actually functions as an optional scrotal sac. So if they need to protect their their junk, <laughs> they can withdraw it into the pouch. Kirk's face was just well, That's best. not where I thought you were going with that. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean useful. Yeah. But uh, wow. I'd use it to store snacks. <laughs> but then you have to reach way around behind to grab them, so that would be awkward. Oh, that would be awkward. Just, Never mind. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad you're going to use a scrotal sack for uh, Well, I wouldn't use That's it lovely. for that. <laughs> what you literally just said. But moving on. Oh, anyway. No. <laughs> so uh, not only does the thylacine somewhat remem- resemble a canid, like a dog or a wolf, their skulls are actually remarkably similar to the skulls of wolves. And it's kind of a, a almost a t- textbook example of convergent evolution because, nice. you know, Love genetically, it. they're not closely related at all. Phylogenetically, they're not close at all on the tree of life. 
Um, nope. Wolves are placental mammals and thylacines are marsupials. But um, their place in the ecosystem led them to evolve some very similar features. That's, that's what convergent evolution is. Uh, so it's really cool. Uh, and speaking of that skull, something different from a wolf is that their jaws opened to 80 degrees. They opened to an uh, angle. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to talk uh, about this. It's hold on. Hold so on. Creepy. 80, 80, yeah. 80 yeah. degrees. <laughs> well, Rachel, there was, there was video footage of this online. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say video. It's film. Yeah. That one that died. You said 1936, was it? 1936. Yeah, in the Hobart Zoo. They uh-huh. got some like some film of it, and yes. it yawns at one point, and it's like, <gasps> oh, my God, it's so oh gosh. It's like a That's it's just horrifying. This, and it looks like it has so many teeth. It's not <laughs> I don't think it's really horrifying. It's like it's really fascinating and super cool. Yeah. And I don't oh, think yeah. that one even like opens its jaw. I didn't realize it was eighty degrees. It doesn't open at eighty in the video, but even in the video you see it and you go, Oh, oh that's not that's not <laughs> what a dog does, you know. Right. Oh no. Okay. It's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> So at the time of European colonization, uh, thylacines were found only in Tasmania. So that's, it's a big island that's just to the south of the Australian continent. But archaeological evidence shows that thylacines were also originally native to New Guinea, and they survived in mainland Australia until approximately 2,000 years ago. Possibly even more recently, there's some mixed evidence. There's been debate about why they disappeared from the mainland. Uh, the leading candidates are that there was kind of a big technological change and and maybe some cultural influx from Southeast Asia around 4,000 years ago um, that led to population increase uh, in Australia. But at the same time... Population increase of humans? Of humans, yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant. Um, Of humans, so like there could have been greater hunting pressure, but then also dingoes were introduced to Australia around the same time. And Ah. so they think... Most likely, it was competition with dingoes that kind of drove them to ex- local extinction on the mainland. I'll have to talk to my dogs about that <laughs> since they are both have dingo heritage. So Do we'll they see. really? Well, they're, they're both uh, Australian cattle dog okay. mixes, and the cattle dog has is part dingo. So it's very small, but you know, I'll ask them about it. <laughs> right there, you go. I'm sure Ada will look at you really lovingly for that. Yeah. Likely. So you can probably guess where the story is going next. Once Europeans arrived in Tasmania, they began to hunt the thylacine, mainly because it was perceived as a threat to sheep and other livestock. Right. Right. And there were bounties put on them by the government. There was also habitat destruction, introduction of feral dogs that competed for food, and introduced diseases. So, you know, all these factors combined led to the extinction of the thylacine ironically <laughs> they put the, the thylacine on the coat of arms of tasmania there are two thylacines holding that crest there <sighs> yeah yeah um so that's kind of that's kind of the end of the story of the thylacine except that while no research can be done on living thylacines they died recently enough that sil- scientists have been able to sequence the genome Oh, cool. Yeah. And just looping back to that convergent evolution with wolves, they've been doing interesting work comparing specific genes in thylacines and wolves to kind of suss out like 
what those things were that kind of led to the convergent evolution. Oh, wow. Huh. What makes this type of tooth, I think, or, you know, this skull shape. To see if those actually the same genes ended up getting selected for and whatnot. Yeah. That's really cool. That's fascinating. That's a lot of hard work. Go science. Go science. That's what I have to say about the thylacine today. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We're going to have another little break, and it'll be Kirk's turn when we get back. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Last week, Rachel uh, had that awesome topic about how flamingos might be responsible for the legend of the phoenix, right? And uh, if you somehow missed that episode, you got to go back and listen. Uh, But, you know, Rachel, you casually dropped one fact into your story and didn't go into depth on it. Uh, You mentioned that flamingos are pink because of carotenoids Uh in their diet. Uh, And I thought as a bonus to your story, this week I'm going to talk about carotenoids. Huh. That's so exciting. Kind of let people know what that is because you sort of, you know, like blew right past it. Um, They do show up a lot. lot And they show up a lot. So like this may not be, I'm going to just confession time. This may not be the strangest of nature topics, but it's one of those background bits of information that comes up a bunch. And so it's really useful information to have when you're talking about a lot of other really strange stuff. So uh, carotenoids are a group of molecules. Uh, they're all chains of 40 carbon atoms with a variable number of hydrogen, hydrogen atoms tacked on. That's basically what okay. makes this, this group up. And they aren't just one thing. There's not like a thing called a carotenoid. Um, I've seen different sources. A lot of people say around 600 or so. I've seen one source saying that there's as high as 750 different naturally occurring carotenoids that have been identified which is pretty wild. That's a lot. We don't usually run into, I mean, that's like, some of those are probably pretty obscure, you know, but those are the, how many have been cataloged. There's a couple that are the ones that we would be running into on sort of a regular basis. Uh, So, yeah, we often refer to them as pigments. And we think of that carotenoids as a pigment because of how they interact with light. They actually absorb certain wavelengths of light and reflect other wavelengths. And so we see them or perceive them as orange, red, and yellow, because that's the light that bounces off these molecules. Uh, They give many naturally occurring things their color, not just flamingos like you talked about, but carotenoids are made in plants, uh, algae, and even photosynthetic bacteria. Everybody listening, I guarantee Mm -hmm. Uh, unless you do not have the ability to see, you have seen carotenoids. Uh, they make flamingos pink. They make uh, autumn leaves yellow. And, for example, the ginkgo leaves you were just talking about, that yellow in there mm-hmm. is from carotenoids. Uh, they also make the oranges in those leaves. Uh, they make tomatoes and apples red. They make bananas yellow, carrots orange. All those colors come from carotenoids. In fact, you may have noticed a similarity between the word carotenoid and carrot, and that is indeed because that is what they're named after. Uh, Carotenoids are first extracted from uh, the roots of carrots when scientists were studying them, so... I was about to ask you if... Yeah, exactly. And I I had always kind of wondered, like, is that that where it comes from? And uh, it is, which is pretty cool. So... That's so fun. You've not just seen carotenoids. uh, You may have also heard of them by some of their other more specific names. So saying carotenoids is sort of like saying 
birds, right? It kind of describes a group of things. Ah, and then there's more uh -huh. specific ones that we may have heard of. And first up is one that I think is probably the most common one people are into, and that's beta carotene. So mm. beta carotene mm. is like a reddish orange color. It's sometimes actually used as a food coloring uh, and as a coloring in cosmetics even. But basically it gives a lot of the color to many, many, many of the foods that we eat. Uh, worldwide, uh, beta carotene is the main source of provitamin A in the human diet. Uh, so I should explain a little bit of what that means, because it's, it's to be clear, it is not vitamin A. It's a source of provitamin A, which means uh, if we ingest it, our body can convert it into vitamin A. So oh, okay. somewhere over half of the vitamin A in our diet, this is obviously going to depend on what your diet is, but somewhere uh, greater than 50% of the vitamin A that your body gets is actually derived from beta carotene that you eat in fruits and veggies, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So That is really cool. I will say on that note, I know that, I don't know if it's as popular as it was, but there's this big food fad, uh, the raw food fad was out yeah, there. That, yeah. that was recent. Oh yeah. my gosh. Like some people think that raw food was somehow better than, than cooked food because everything's like in its natural state. Well, here's mm -hmm. the thing. Cooking plants that have beta carotene in it splits open the cell walls, which is where the beta carotene is, and then makes it more available to be absorbed. And this is true for pretty much all nutrients. Like most things, mm -hmm. humans can get more nutrients out of them when they have been cooked. Also, Beta carotene is fat soluble, not water soluble. Um, so it needs to interact a little bit of fat, uh, and then our bodies absorb it kind of from the fat. So be sure to cook your carrots in a little bit of olive oil, and they're delicious, like I just did earlier butter this week. Carrots also great. Yeah, butter. Oh, mm. but I mean, oh, don't get me started. Now, uh, so good. <laughs> too much beta carotene can be a bad thing, uh, and perhaps this is the strange part of my topic. Just like flamingos turn, uh, you know, kind of pink or uh, when they eat uh, some of this, the same mm -hmm. thing can happen to humans. <gasps> so Can we turn yep. to orange? Yeah, humans can turn yeah. orange if you have too much beta carotene. I mean, you'd have to eat a lot of carrots, but especially if you're taking supplements or something like that, you could definitely turn orange. It's called uh, carotinodermia, and that is, it literally means orange skin. So you can turn that, orange. It actually Solid. happened to a friend of mine in high school. Really? I think she had a little bit of an eating disorder. Yeah. And she was, yeah, she was turned kind of orange carrots. Oh my gosh! Well, that would that would do it. Um, good news is uh, that it does go away if you just stop eating yeah. the, the food. So it, it's not like a permanent change to your skin. It was even um, has been has been sold. I don't know if it still is sold, but it has been sold in the past as like a sunless tanner. So you, you take these pills, and it kind of gives you an orange there. glow to your skin. That seems like oh, a God. bad idea. Yeah, that's not, that's not recommended. That doesn't seem healthy. No, no, it's not great. Generally, too much vitamins of any kind is generally a bad thing. And people are like, oh, I'm going to take a mega dose of, you know, XYZ vitamin. And usually, uh, most of the studies done show that that's a bad thing. Yeah, everything in balance. Yeah, there's actually a toxic dose of most vitamins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, yes. but they have studied different doses of different vitamins and things like uh, beta carotene to see, you know, could it be helpful uh, medically? And one of the things they found uh, isn't that it does There haven't been any really good studies that show that it's really like an important thing to have large doses of, although we definitely do need it in regular doses for getting our vitamin A. 
Uh, they have shown that if you are a smoker and you take large doses of beta carotene, it could actually increase uh, your chance of cancer, uh, which is, yeah, and I think maybe it has something to do with it. It, it helps um, oxidize or it can oxidize in your lungs. And if your mm -hmm. lungs are already damaged, it could, it could cause more problems. So there actually are warnings huh. on um, some beta carotenes not to take too much if you're a smoker. So <clears throat> how about some other carotenoids? Um, lycopene, have you heard of that one? Yeah, tomatoes. No. Yeah, exactly. It's found in tomatoes. And I know some ketchup companies were like doing a really hard sell a few years ago and bragging about the lycopene you can find in ketchup. And they were like, dudes, mm. you got to eat some lycopene. And they're trying to pump it up for men because there was a study that showed that it was good for prostate health and could like prevent mm -hmm. prostate cancer. You don't see that claim on ketchup really much anymore because uh, all the no. like, larger studies that were done went wah, wah, and showed that there really wasn't any kind of effect. You know what's probably not good for prostate cancer? Uh, what's that? Massive amounts of sugar that are in ketchup. Well, you know, that wasn't what the, they were studying. They weren't making any claims about their sugar content. They were just saying, hey, there's lycopene in here, which is true. Uh -huh. Um, and lycopene is actually from a different group that does not get converted into vitamin A. So basically, as far as we know right now, lycopene doesn't really do anything, anything for us. But they're still studying it. Um, lycopene, in, in, interestingly, I'm guessing most of you um, have cursed lycopene, uh, ly, uh, lycopene, lycopene. I was trying to combine like iocane with lycopene. Um, <laughs> that's totally We're going different. Back to iocane. But also comes from Australia. Uh, so lycopene. Um, <laughs> I know it's the bane of my existence at times because <laughs> it stains plastic. And if oh, you ever stored yes. a tomato base leftover in oh, in plastic, yeah. you discover that it kind of turns orange afterwards. That's the yep. lycopene. It is it, any kind of porous surface it will stain, and no amount of scrubbing with water will ever remove it because, well, science. Lycopene is nonpolar, uh, which means water will mm. not work to break it down and remove it. I will give you a little tip here, though. If you wash it in water with bleach, the chlorine will polarize the lycopene, and it can then be dissolved by the water. Aha! Chemistry uh -huh. to the rescue. So I feel like putting it through the dishwasher, if you have a dishwasher, also usually does the trick. There might be some uh, things in the detergents that will also um, yeah. remove some of that. Do that, yeah. So the last one I have for you, don't worry, I'm not doing all 750 carotenoids is uh, uh, lutein, right? So lutein comes from the Latin word for yellow, and it is, you guessed it, yellow. So it's a yellow pigment. Uh, it's the yellow color in many leaves and root vegetables. Um, it's also, interestingly, the color yellow in egg yolks. Uh, so oh, That's really? where I've heard of it. I yeah, think. and it, it looks yellow because it's so good at absorbing blue light, so it reflects a lot of yellow. And what I think is really interesting is some farmers will actually feed it to chickens, to produce better looking eggs with like yellower, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, yolks. Yes. And it's, it, I oh, think so if you have really well fed chickens, they're going to have very yellow mm -hmm. oaks because, uh, oh, yolks, because they're getting a lot of, you know, different nu nutrients in their diet. But just to make them look better, they'll also just feed that to the chickens. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Which is interesting. I mean, like, why not? If you have real free-range chickens that are scratching and eating bugs, and yeah, yeah, yeah they get lots They're, of they get natural. The natural sources of lutein. Yeah, and so the yolks wind up super kind of yellowy orange. Exactly. Now they've people figured this out. They've also some farmers who are fish farmers will feed it to their fish as well because mm -hmm. it can make the flesh of the fish 
have a more natural color like you would expect to get with a wild caught fish. Um, salmon. Okay. Like salmon, yeah. So yeah, and okay. so it's it's really cool that you have uh, you know people are figuring out like oh the health of these animals that are farm raised. Uh, I mean, is is it for their health or is it just to make the consumers go ooh that looks nice I want to eat that. Um, bit of both, mm. but I think it's kind of cool. A bit of both. Yeah. So um, there is actually with, with lutein a little bit of research that's been done that actually has shown that it is important for eye health and can actually reduce the effects of macular degeneration by up to like 25%. So really a significant uh, reduction in that. So could be good for your eyes. Yeah, wow. Uh, so I remember growing up being told, eat your carrots, it's good for your eyesight. Oh. I blame the Looney Tunes. I wasn't going to go into that. Uh... I will save that for another episode because yeah, okay. the story behind carrots and why we tell people it's good for your eyesight is a fascinating story that I do not, this would be like an hour long podcast if I go into that. So we're, I'll save it <laughs> okay. for a couple of weeks from now. We'll go into that. Okay. Um, okay. But basically okay. Uh, it, it is interesting and I guess not surprising that these naturally occurring molecules are in our food um, and get used by our bodies and have effects on our bodies. So they are a continuing source of study for scientists because we are still learning how they affect us. Um, and they have turned out to be pretty useful. And we end up learning more about them every year. So now you too know a little bit about carotenoids. Awesome. Thank you, Kirk. Cool. No problem. Yeah, thanks, Kirk. Well, thanks, everybody, for uh, coming along on the ride this week. Yeah. See you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure okay. to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.